upper academic calling, Brian Broom. In his memoir, Punch Me Up to the Gods, Brian Broom asks, what if I believe brown boys to be just as worthy as white ones? Punch Me Up to the Gods is Brian's story, a story of growing up a dark-skinned black boy in a small Ohio town, of having crushes on boys, and learning that you don't fit a restrictive type of masculinity that you were supposed to grow into. Brian's recounting of his experiences in all their cringeworthy, hilarious, and heartbreaking glory reveal a perpetual outsider who is awkwardly squirming to find his way in. But it's also a story about what kind of Black boys and men we raise. It's a tribute to Black womanhood and Black women, as well as to the early queer trailblazers in our lives. It's realizing that your parents, particularly your mothers, are people in and of themselves. Punch Me Up to the Gods is very honest about the shames Brian carries and how he does or doesn't or is still trying to deal with them. I genuinely loved getting the chance to talk with Brian about masculinity, about the various frames in his memoir, about his discovering of the poet Gwendolyn Brooks, and even about birthdays. We recorded over Zoom, so yes, my cat again makes an appearance, which Brian, also a cat person, was thankfully delighted by. My hope is that folks who have already read Brian's memoir will turn back to it for another read, and that for folks that haven't yet, that you run out and pick up this incredible book. Currently, Punch Me Up to the Gods is available in hardcover, though its paperback will be out on May 3rd, 2022. So mark your calendars or call your favorite bookstore for a pre-order. Uh, and it's also available in ebook and digital audio formats from Mariner Books. So joining us on the podcast today is Brian Broom, author of the memoir, Punch Me Up to the Gods. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. So to get started, it's kind of a usual question, but how did you start writing your memoir? Why did you think you wanted to write a memoir and tell your story? Oh, the story, the story. You know, I, I didn't start off wanting to write a memoir or write a, a book or write anything, really. Um, I had, uh, I went to rehab, you know, it's my, my, um, Addictions had gotten pretty bad and I was sort of issued an ultimatum um, and I went to rehab and, uh, I, you know, I sort of thought I was uh, tricking everybody, you know, I was like, I'll just go for a couple of days and then, you know, just come back out and do the same old thing. Um, but when I got to rehab, I sort of realized that, uh, you know, I kind of, I think I need to be here um, after uh, a few days. And there's not a whole lot to do in rehab, um, except not get high. And that left a lot of space open. And I also had this roommate who was, uh, who snored, he snored really badly. And so I was just up nights, you know, with nothing to do. And so I started writing and that's kind of how I started writing again, um, because I used to write when I was a kid and uh, just stopped, you know, um, and just writing in rehab. And when I got out of rehab, I wanted to, I wanted to like be around people again, but I was afraid I was going to relapse. Uh, so I started performing and that's basically what, what happened. I was writing these things in rehab. And then when I got out of rehab, I started doing like open mics and like performing them um, around the city of Pittsburgh and like the moth and like different open mic nights. 
one night a woman uh, came up and asked me if she could be my agent. And that was really weird. I didn't know what an agent was. And, um, and she asked like, you know, what, what are you writing right now? And I said, I'm writing these, these things that, you know, that I had written in rehab. And she said, let me see them. And <laughs> I let her see them. And that's how the book got started. You know, uh, more stories kept co were coming to me. I was writing more store, more stories of things that happened in my life. And, um, and then one day, you know, I was working with my agent, Danielle, and then one day there was a book like that's <laughs> That's pretty much how it went down, you know, so my plan wasn't to become a writer. It just kind of happened that way. And I really uh, am grateful that I get to do it. Yeah. And now you can call yourself a capital W writer. Can I? I don't know. I can't. I guess I could, but I don't want to. I, I, I like it. the I like the lowercase w. I think it's dignified. I get, I get it. Um, so one of the things that I super loved about your book is how uh, it incorporates uh, as its frame the Gwendolyn Brooks poem, We Real Cool. Um, what does that poem mean to you as a person and as a writer? And why was it important for you to structure your novel around those lines of poetry? I am, um, you know, I remember being in the uh, Chatham University Library when I um, when I discovered Brent Gwendolyn Brooks, like I, leg I legitimately, I was in the library and I was reading something and um, the, the uh, I saw that poem and I legitimately thought I discovered it. I was, I was like, oh my God, I've discovered this new poet named Gwendolyn Brooks. It was ridiculous, like ridiculous. And I went back and I told my agent, I was like, I've discovered this poem. And she was like, Brian, you idiot. Like, <laughs> This poem has been around for a very long time, but, um, you know, I wanted to use it because, um, you know, her, what she did in those like eight lines, I think it is, is completely encapsulate what I was talking about, like in my book, you know, I, I thought that her poem was addressing this idea of masculinity in um, specifically black men, you know, the, and then I read further and like, you know, the story behind the poem is, you know, she was walking down the street um, one day in Chicago and she looked into a pool hall and there were like seven boys, you know, in this pool hall doing very sort of like manly things, you know, very early on. And um, it just really, I thought it really connected to what I was trying to talk about with the stories that I was telling. And so I was like, I have to, I have to use it. I have to use it. Yeah. And one of the things that you spend a lot of time talking about in a lot of different ways um, is, as you say, Black masculinity and how you were brought up to sort of train yourself that it is very much one way. Um, and you were experiencing it in your own way and creating your version of masculinity and selfhood in a very different way from, from prescribed ways. So I guess one thing that I'm wondering is when people get done reading Punch Me Up to the Gods, how do you hope people reconsider the ideas that they have about masculinity? Well, I hope that people reconsider the ideas that they have about gender in, in general, you know, um, not just, you know, uh, masculinity, but, you know, specifically, I think that for Black men, like this idea of being uber masculine like there he's a kitty uh sorry uh, <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> uber masculine is 
is so important, I think, because it connects to how powerless that racism can make you feel, mm -hmm. you know, and the reaction to that feeling of powerlessness or that fear or, or that the um, the reaction to oppression has been a very sharp push back, you know, um, for, I think, black men um, to the point where, you know, these ideas of masculinity become uh, more important than the ideas of just being a human being. Mm -hmm. um, you have to start immediately as a black uh, boy, like excising certain things from your from your humanity. You know, Bell Hooks, you know, says that the first act of violence that men are asked to perform is not on other men, but on themselves. Mm -hmm. um, wherein we, you know, masculinity is not about things that you, that to, to like that you're supposed to do. It's about, it's more about things you're not allowed to do. You know, yeah. more about things that you're not permitted to do that you have to uh, start you know uh taking taking out of yourself like like, you know. like crying yeah yeah like crying you know like um you know sensitivity like um you know a lot of a lot of things you know and we start we start um telling young boys that almost immediately that every emotion that you have other than you know anger mm -hmm. isn't legitimate and i think it robs a lot of men of the full experience of life. Something else that happens and that you talk a lot about in, in, your, in your memoir is shame. One of the things that I found very compelling about your memoir and just all of the different stories that you were telling is how brutally honest you were um, in it. I, I, I sometimes treat memoirs with a little bit of suspicion that perhaps still this person is telling me um, only part of the story, but I really felt like you were just that this book just kind of laid it all out there in a lot of ways. And it comes when you talk about being a black man. Uh, it comes when you talk about sexuality. It comes when you talk about um, your first experience of um, a gay pride parade, which I think is always kind of a tough thing for a lot of gay people because you want it to be so happy and so celebratory and probably part of you is also just scared to death as well um, for a lot of different reasons. And I guess once you knew that this was a, a book project that was eventually going to be out into the world with other people, read by people you know and love and people you don't know at all, when you were in the later stages of, of editing, did you ever sort of have a moment where you hesitated and were like, wait a second, maybe, maybe I don't want to say so much or was it something that you were able to say, okay, this, this is a book, this is a collection of stories I am telling about myself, but this is a thing, and I know that it's a thing, and I can sort of step out of it and be okay with people knowing so much about me and, and, and knowing just so many sort of raw emotions about shame, but also other, other things, happiness, sadness, it's, it's all kind of in there. So what, what, is that, what was that part of it like for you? I think, you know, there were moments like, you know, particularly when we were getting close to publication where I started really balking. <laughs> like, um, no, where, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I was like, can we just kind of forget about this whole thing? Um, you know, but at that point I had already taken the money. So and that's know, why you have an agent who says no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I, I, uh, I, I did. But, you know, I was still, I think, up until the moment that the, you know, the 
the trucks started leaving the warehouse with my my book, I was still kind of like still holding on to a lot of that shame. People have, you know, then you talk to people, you know, when you're doing this sort of book, uh, you know, on, you're on the book trail and people ask you about it. And each time, like I talk about it, it I feel less ashamed, you know, there's, it, it acted as kind of a remedy in some ways um, to the shame that I have carried my whole life. And it was just the truth and it was out there. And so I don't have to, you know, like pretend anymore or, or you know, I, I, I lean into the fact that I am an imperfect person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what many people are responding to, you know, because, you know, every, nobody is a perfect person and everybody has made mistakes and done the wrong thing and, and said the wrong thing and, and has prioritized the wrong thing, you know? Okay. And I think that the fact that I'm, I, I have said it, you know, in, in, you know, in tangible pages that people can read over and over and over again, if they choose to, that I think that people respond to that. And, and, you know, initially I thought, that this book was going to just be for other black gay boys. I, you know, I, I thought um, that's going to be my audience, you know, yeah. but what I found is that all different kinds of people uh, find resonance with these themes, you yeah. know, of being, uh, you know, uh, ashamed. Yeah. Um, and I was kind of shocked because for, I think for a really long time in my life, I thought I was the only one who felt these things Right. And, I, and and what's more, I thought I was the only one who deserved to feel these things. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I'm glad that, you know, people know, like, I don't have to, I can just go out into the world and kind of like be, be myself, you know? Yeah. And I think, I think that that's part of what struck me as being so very authentic about your book is that I... There were so, and I don't mean this to sound in any way sort of condescending or, or belittling um, or t- to make it diminutive in any way what, what the stories you told, but there were just so many moments where I just, I just wanted to give you a hug and I just wanted to be like, yeah, like I, we all, I get it. I get yeah. it, you know, and, and it's, it's that kind of, for me, I think it, it's, it's very, it's a very brave act when someone who is writing a memoir is willing to be that honest about things that make them doubt themselves so much and feel such revulsion and confusion and horror towards themselves. And, and that, I, that I really, really, really appreciated um, about, about your book because I, I felt that I was really seeing you. Sometimes it was just so hard and so traumatic emotionally and intellectually. And, and that kind of honesty, I really, I, as a reader, I just really, really appreciated that. Um, you can't thank you so much I mean you can't imagine how many times I like would it's gratifying to hear that because there were so many times in the writing that I would write something and then hit the backspace button you know um, and then write it again and then hit the backspace button and then write you know it wasn't like I you know it it wasn't like I was like you know like I'm gonna get it all out there you know there was there was some reticence you know and I would write it all out and then I would walk away from it. Um, and then I would come back maybe a couple of days later and be like, oh, that's, well, I guess it's not so bad. Maybe it's not so bad, you know? Yeah. And then I would move on, you know? So it was kind of like a hold your nose and jump into the water kind of thing at times. So 
um, you know, you can't fight gravity. So you just kind of do it and see yeah. what happens. And so thank you for saying that. I really, uh, it really is gratifying to hear that. Yeah. Structurally, another part of Punch Me Up to the Gods that struck me a lot was your mom's chapter. And I'm just kind of curious, uh, as a reader, I'm curious sort of how that came about. Like, did you, did you interview her for it and then, you know, kind of do a verbatim transcription or did you interview her and then sort of have to kind of put the pieces together? Um, because in, in a way for me as someone, um, Thursday is my mom's birthday. Uh, she turns 80 on Thursday, which is just wild for me to, to think about, but. My birthday is, uh, Thursday. Oh my God. Is it? Yeah. 24th. Yes. 24th. Yeah. That's my birthday too. Oh my gosh. Two people from around Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> Tell her I say happy birthday. Eric. I will. And I'm sure she says the same to you. But <laughs> one of the things that made me think about um, when I read your mom's chapter and thinking about my mom is, is how you did it is that it, you were thinking about your mom as your mom, um, but also as a person in the world. And as a, as a kid, I think no matter how, how old you are, when you think of your parent or parental figure or whoever, um, when you sort of remove that deeply personal relationship and see them as a person, it could be kind of a mind trippy thing. Um, mm. So what was that, what was that experience like for you? How did, how did the actual writing of that chapter go? And then sort of how emotionally, intellectually, what was that like for you? I, um, I did interview my mom. Um, I kind of, uh, I think I sort of tricked her um, because my mother is not a very like forthcoming person, you know, uh, particularly about, you know, the past and things that may, um, you know, have been hurtful. I mean, she's just from that generation where you don't talk about stuff. You just, right. you know, uh, you don't talk about family business, family business stays in the family, that, that sort of thing. And so um, I, I went back to um, Ohio and um, I remember it was at my aunt's house and I had, uh, you know, a little recorder and a microphone mm -hmm. and I just asked her it, it, uh, questions about her life. The chapter itself is not verbatim quotes. Okay. Um, she just answered my questions um, in a very kind of matter of fact way most of the time, like. And a lot of the things that, um, you know, that are in the book, um, I didn't know, you know, I didn't know my mom was an umbrella girl at a, you know, at a, um, uh, a department store, which, and I didn't know what an umbrella girl was. It just opened up, you know, and, you know, in my mind, I was like, why the hell would simply you need an umbrella girl? You just go pick up an umbrella. But like, that's what really sort of pushed me in, in to realizing, oh shit, my mother had a whole life before me. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. and that she had hopes and that she had dreams and that, you know, her life went in a completely different direction because of, of one mistake. And that's when you, you know, like you say, I started seeing my mom as a person. I started seeing her story. So what I did was I asked her um, a bunch of questions, a bunch, um, some of which she re refused to answer, but um, I asked her enough to where I could figure out how, you know, she became my mother. And, um, and then I, I went back and I listened to the tape over and over again. I started to fill in the, what I thought were the emotional blanks. Okay. You know, like, how would I feel if I was, if I was my mother? How would I feel if I were this, 
you know, this uh, girl in the, you know, in the 1950s and 60s, um, you know, super racist time in America. And I was just in the position that she was in. So that's how that, chap that chapter came about. It really started because I was so, you know, there was at a point I was so tired of my own voice um, in the book that I really wanted to bring in another voice. And, um, you know, my mother's voice is perfect. It was perfect, you know, because who knows your story better than your mom? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's how that chapter came about. I just, uh, uh, I just, I interviewed her. And luckily, you know, um, after words, she read it and she approved and she personally handpicked the actor who played her in the audiobook. Like <laughs> she was mad with power, you know, so like I was sending her these um, audio tapes of uh, different actors who were, you know, supposed to read her part in the book. And she was like, that, that woman sounds nothing like me, you know? And then, so she finally uh, picked her own actor to play the part. And so she felt, she was a casting director. So she felt very, very important for a couple of weeks there. <laughs> That's great to know. I, um, I will have to seek out the audiobook version because I now want to hear what that, what that audio actor said. Oh yeah, my mother loved the actor who played her. <laughs> Um, so another thing that happens in terms of um, the frame of your book is you you are telling the not the story but um, you're you're on a bus you're riding into into downtown Pittsburgh and there is a boy called Tuan and he is with his dad on the bus as well and so he he and his father and um, the relationship and interaction between the two of them um, kind of weave their way in and out as a device throughout the book. If Tuan one one day reads James Baldwin what do you hope his takeaway is? And what do you hope Tuan is doing now? I hope Tuan is um, at his ballet class that happens right after his football game, that happens right before his acting class, that happens right after. I hope that he's doing all the things without worrying about whether or not this makes him look like a boy or not. I hope that he's doing all the things. I hope he's doing watercolors and playing with dolls and playing with footballs and play. I mean, just I want him to be able to sample everything, do everything. You know, I that's what I. I mean, that's what I truly hope he's doing right now. Chances are, with his father, he's probably not. He's probably doing all the all the quote unquote boy things, but. I hope that at some point, you know, he does realize that all these things are available to me. All these emotions are available to me. Um, and I get to, I should be able to feel and do them all, um, reg regardless of what, you know, my sex is. You know, I hope that he does eventually, um, you know, come across some James Baldwin and recognize the, the sort of indefatigability of that individual, like James Baldwin was a force of nature. And, but also a deeply human person and flawed and, 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 but, you know, seemed to really know what he wanted out of life and seemed to be unflinching in terms of like talking about um, his experience and the experiences of other um, people of color or black people specifically. So yeah, I hope Tuan's doing all the things I, uh, um, and, and, uh, and enjoying them. I hope he has a closet full of dungarees and dresses. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I hope he is too. And I, I have never um, so much wanted someone who probably had no idea that he was, you know, a character in a book. I just, I really just genuinely want him to come across 
this memoir and pick it up and be like, holy shit, that's me. You know, yeah, that, I really, would, that would be that would be so amazing if one yeah. day like you get I an get email. A, yeah, I get an email and, he, and some kid is like, I am pretty sure that that is me. And yeah. I would I would shit. And then, like, I mean, literally, I, I mean, if, if that did happen, I think I would know who he was. Like, I mean, his face is kind of like, you know, indelibly imprinted on my brain. I think I could oh, see, yeah. like, 30 years from now, I would know that it was him. Like, absolutely. So I hope so, too. I hope so, too. And so then just, he, he'll demand his cut from the, from yes. the save up those save up those royalty payments. Yeah, I gotta save they up the, they he's might coming for you. He's coming for me. So I just have one more question for you. Since this podcast is primarily geared toward um, faculty, teachers, and their students, who was your favorite teacher? Oh boy. I think you know, I did not have a great experience before college. Um, I went to a, a, you know, very small town, like high elementary school, middle school, and high school. Those teachers, for the most part, were not good to me because they did not expect much from a Black child, and they did not encourage Black children. That is a, um, an unfortunate fact that there are teachers who who aren't necessarily like outwardly racist, but but are, you know, who, who um, treat their black students different differently. Gosh, I'm just, like my favorite teacher. I think it's probably me. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've, oh, you know, I had a really great uh, um, um, instructor at uh, Chatham University named Dr. Wardy. She really believed in me. But even before her, and I think, but this isn't necessarily a teacher, but when I got out of rehab, I decided to go back to school because, you know, I was like, I don't know what else to do. You know, I decided to go back to school. So I, I went to community college and I had an advisor named uh, Dr. Evelyn Kitchens Stevens. And I went to go see her in her office at CCAC, Community College of Allegheny County, was full of pictures of her as a ballerina. She used to be a dancer um, when she was younger. So these beautiful pictures of this beautiful Black woman, like in tutus and doing arabesque. And like, it was great. And immediately she told me to stop complaining. Because I was like, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. And like, I don't know what college and I was never any good. And she would just, you know, her, her, her approach was to just tell me to shut up and do the thing. Go, you know, and I started writing there at CCAC as well. And she said, you should keep writing. You should keep writing. Um, you should keep writing. And I would show her my writing and she loved it. And she would, you know, also it was always like, stop complaining, keep writing. She was also very sweet. And then she, after I was done at CCAC, I had two years there, I would go see her like every week. She was always very encouraging about my writing. She encouraged me to go on to Chatham University. And I went on to Chatham University. And then after that, I got accepted at grad school. And I went back to tell her about it. And she had passed away. I, I literally went back and they were like cleaning out her office. Oh my goodness. And it was it was heartbreaking because I wanted her to know that, look, all this encouragement you gave me, like, 
you know, it paid off. I'm going to do a thing. So she never got to see like the book or, or anything like that. I think that she wasn't a teacher per se, but she was somebody within like the school system that actually did see me as a person and did actually um, encourage me. And I think that may have been, you know, the first time. And, you know, and if it weren't for her, I would not have met Dr. Wardy and I would not have met, you know, Yona Harvey and all these other teachers who were so great to me, like throughout my college career. She certainly sounds like a teacher to me. Yeah, absolutely. She was amazing. She was amazing. And she was a teacher. I forget what she taught before she started doing like the, you know, the academic advising. So she's my favorite teacher. Well, Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I had a wonderful time. I can't see the cat anymore, but please, please, please do tell your mom I said happy birthday, even if she doesn't know who the hell I am.